Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt. In this interview episode, my guest is the Scottish crime writer Wendy Jones. Wendy grew up in Dundee on the north bank of the Firth of Tay. She's had a varied career, serving in the armed forces and in academia. From school, she joined the Royal Navy to undertake nurse training. And after six years, she joined the British Army, where she served for 17 years, travelling around the world, visiting the far and Middle East Israel and Hong Kong. She's now come back from her travels to settle in in her native Dundee, where she's writing a series of police procedural novels set in the city, featuring Detective Inspector Shona McKenzie of the Tayside Police. So welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, Wendy. Thank you. It's great to be here, actually. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, you've obviously had done a lot of stuff during your career. What did you get up to in the armed forces when you were in the Navy and in the Army? Well, it sounds very grand, really, but I actually joined up as a nurse. So two weeks after my 18th birthday, I left Dundee on the train and joined the Queen Alexandra's Royal Naval Nursing Service. And I did my nurse training in the Royal Navy. And then I left and went and did a course in Civvy Street. Now, this was in a time where people weren't paid particularly well in Civvy Street if you were a nurse. So I thought, oh, I'm going to join up again. So I did and joined up, took a commission in the Queen Alexandra's Royal Army Nursing Corps and joined up as a lieutenant. And I've got a scroll signed by the Queen to prove it. Um, I then, as you say, went all over the world. So it was great fun. I managed to go to Hong Kong, Germany, Israel, Holland, Cyprus, Gibraltar, and various spots that aren't quite so exciting in the United Kingdom, like Aldershot and North Yorkshire. (laughs) (laughs) What sort of thing were were you getting up to? I I presume you did a bit of nursing when you were travelling around. Yeah, I managed to do some nursing as well. Um, I'm actually an adult nurse. I'm a children's nurse because they sent me to Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital to do my nurse training. Oh, okay. And I'm also an ophthalmic nurse because I went to Moorfields Eye Hospital and did my um, ophthalmic training. So I'm triple trained. Um, I also worked in academia in the services and my last position before I left the army um, as a major was um, as the head of pre-registration nurse education, which was a tri-service post. So it was for the uh, Navy, Army and Air Force. So I came full circle. Oh, OK. And uh, you you are now writing. Are you doing that full time? I'm writing full time. Right. It's a full time job for me. Okay. Um, I moved back to Dundee after all my shenanigans around the world. Thought, oh, I could become a writer. I quite like writing. So I started writing. So that's what I do all the time now. Okay. If we go back a little bit, when you were a child, what was it that got you into reading? I, I think I read something about you having a bit of a debate with a librarian once about giving you an adult library card. And, and I'm deducing from that that you did enjoy reading when you were a kid. Is, is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. Um, my mother, who obviously showed admirable patience, taught me to read at the age of three and I took off. I loved reading and was actually an advanced reader by the time I started at primary school. By the time I was 10, I did have the debate you were alluding to. I have to say the librarians then were terribly, terribly strict. And they were um, saying that I couldn't have an adult library card because I wasn't an adult. But I won and I got an adult library card. So I was quite lucky. I moved on to reading uh, things like Agatha Christie. And I went through the whole of the collection of Agatha Christie and Dundee libraries. The rest, they say, is history. Most writers start out reading 
and everybody that I've talked to who is a writer has said that they were a fairly avid reader uh, as they were young but when when did you then start to write or when did you discover that you enjoyed writing? Well I've always loved words my my mother gave me a, a typewriter when I was about seven I don't know whether it was a child's typewriter or an adult typewriter but it was a typewriter and I started writing stories then and I always enjoyed the academic side of writing I've done two master's degrees and I loved all the research and the writing to do with that I wrote a lot in academia had written academic textbooks and things but no novels really and then I was I was very ill and that was when I decided I needed to give up the world of academia and move back to Dundee now I had an idea for a book so I just started writing it really I wrote it and it was part of um NaNoWriMo um for don't know what NaNoWriMo is it's National Novel Writers Month and you pledge to write 50,000 words in a month so I did this and thought oh maybe I could finish this book and I did it so that's how I got started really. Now was that the first in your series then or was that that something different from what you're doing now was that your first Shona McKenzie book? It was it was the first DI Shona McKenzie book Killer's Countdown and I gave it to a few people thinking and it wasn't just um, people I knew I gave it to a stranger as well who got back to they all got me and went this is really good. I really enjoyed it. You should get this published. And that was when I thought, oh, well, maybe I can do this. <laughs> so now that I think that you've written three of the novels in that series. Yeah. And uh, I want to start to explore a little bit about your work now. And I've read the third in that series, which is the one that's come out mo- most recently. And there was a couple of questions I wanted to ask you about that. And this is Killer's Cross, which features D.I. Shona McKenzie. Now, in that particular book, you give us the story from both the protagonist's point of view, so Shona's point of view, and the killer's point of view at different points in different chapters. What what was your thinking in using that device? Well, when I um, first started out with the first book, because of the, the um, subject matter of the first book, it was important that people knew both the killer's and the police point of view. Right. So it started out in Killer's Countdown, really. You get the history of the killer, you get the killer currently, and you get the police. And it was important because you need to know the killer's psyche. So that was why it happened. Now, it was very well received and people seemed to like it, which was good. And a lot of people said they liked the way that the um, killer's psyche was explored as well. And you saw it from that point of view. So I then made a, a conscious decision to move on and actually use that in the other books. So that's why I do it, really. Yeah, it's an it's an intriguing device. Certainly, coming just to the, the the book that I've read, it felt really very interesting just to be able to see into the world of that killer and to actually be party to something which obviously Shona McKenzie and all her team haven't yet seen, have they? We, we as the reader, we get an insight into what's going on before she does. It's a difficult balance, really, because what you've got to do is you need to give the reader enough to keep them um, interested but without giving everything away. It's a fine line you're walking, really, so that the reader does know a bit more than the police, but not enough that they don't know what the ending's going to be. Do you think over the course of those three books, then you have changed where that fine line is? Have you refined where you pitch that in terms of how much or how little you get? Or, or do you think you probably got it about right with the first book and you've kept it to a consistent approach? There? No, I have changed in the okay. first book. The, and it was, this was deliberate about, I'd say, three quarters of the way through. The actual reader gets to know who the killer is just before the police. Right. But then the police get to know and it's about it then becomes a how done it, whereas more of a who done it in books two and three okay 
I want to come on as well now to talk about a subject that I think is very important, which is voice. There's some Scottish words and some dialect in your work. How much of that is just that's because it's who you are and how much of it that is a conscious decision for you as a writer? Well, it doesn't really come from deep in me, although I can use Scottish words if I want to. Having been an army officer, a lot of the time it was quite frankly, frightfully. And having been told when I was um, 18, when I joined the Royal Navy, that I needed to change the way I spoke or give up nursing because nobody could understand me. I don't use a lot of Scottish words, although I use the odd, you know, it's Bonnie Dundee and I say we like W-E-E as in small. Again, that's another fine balancing act because you need to get a little flavour of the Scottish dialect in without putting everybody off. Now, I'm slightly fortunate in that D.I. Shona McKenzie was, although she's from Dundee, moved when she was two years old and moved to Oxford. So has been brought up in England and speaks English. She doesn't really know much Scottish. So she's only recently moved back to Dundee before the first book starts. So if there is Scottish, she's always going, for heaven's sake, would you translate it for me? I don't know what you're talking about. So you can translate. So that makes it easier for the reader in Australia or America. Yeah. So it sounds as if you're using a relatively light touch in terms of those that the, the, the words you use, the local words, the dialect, that kind of thing. To be honest, if I use too much um, Scottish even the, or Dundonian, even the people that live in Montrose or Edinburgh wouldn't understand what I was talking right. about. So. <laughs> That would limit your, your readership a little bit, wouldn't it? it? Would, yes. Yeah. Now, clearly, you do know Dundee well. Your your books are based there. You, you grew up there. You're back in there now. You've obviously got quite a bit of local knowledge. How do you use that local knowledge? What's, what's the process by which you decide which bits of local reality to bring into your story? Well, you need to give the readers a flavour of what Dundee's like, what it looks like, the buildings, the streets. Um, we've got a hill in the middle of Dundee, which is called the law. Law is Scottish for hill. So, but you have to call it the Law Hill in the books because if I said, oh, there's been a murder on the law, does that make any sense to anybody outside Dundee? No. <laughs> so it's part of it is that. So it's letting them know what Dundee is like, but again, without overwhelming them. Because if I describe every single brick and every crack and every pavement, they're soon going to switch off or put the book down. So it, it sounds like perhaps as with dialect and, and, and the particular words you're using, it's it's a light touch. It's enough to give your story flavour and depth, but not to alienate the reader. Absolutely, yes. Now, I want to move on as well to the way in which you use your professional experience. In Killer's Cross, there are little references to um, medical things. I mean, I'm not going to talk too much about that particular plot, but there are certain references to, to medical things. There are medical devices that are described. I got the sense that you were drawing on some of your professional experience there. Was that correct? Absolutely, yes. I mean, as a nurse, I've been into operating theatres. I've been in, I've seen post-mortems or autopsies, depending on which part of the world you live in. Um, I've actually been in and I've watched them. So I know it very intensely, really. Um, I'm able to draw on a lot of things but again, I don't want to alienate the reader. So it's giving them enough so that they know what's happening without going into every single little part of it. Again, where people would turn off. 
I suppose, obviously, in terms of the genre that you're writing in, which is police procedure and, and murder mysteries, you do present a lot of police procedure. So how do you research that? How do you go about making sure that, that what you're talking about is kind of at some level factually correct in terms of what would really happen? Oh, that's frightfully tricky. I have to say it's very difficult to do that. It involved a lot of um, sitting around in my lounge, eating chocolate biscuits and drinking copious amounts of tea with the local policeman. <laughs> ah, OK. So you did have somebody who was on the force come and chat with you absolutely i don't i'd only just moved back to dundee and i'd only just bought my house so i'd only been in a matter of months and the police were at my door and the car was there for about four hours so i don't know what my neighbors must have thought really (laughs) (laughs) so they had the police car parked outside for all that time absolutely yes so they came in and as i say now there's a lot of eating and drinking in my books trust me the police eat and drink a lot Now, that is true, actually. I'm just thinking back to like, every chapter. So there is obviously a guy who is, is on a diet. He seems to just have a really rough time in this book because everybody else is like in the coffee shop on, on the donuts, drinking and eating all the time. It's, it's, it's woven into the fabric of, of the book, isn't it? Eating and drinking. I don't know whether that's the case for the earlier ones, but certainly this. No, book. it's the same for all of them. They eat, but that's the police. The police eat. I've got friends who are police and they go, all they do is eat. You cannot have a meeting without a load of cream cakes. I mean, I got a flavour of that from when we were sitting around here drinking the tea and eating the biscuits. But I also, the, the police gave me a lot of good information as well. Then they said to me at the end, they said, you're not exactly going to write about what we do, are you? They said, because everybody will die of boredom before they get to page two. <laughs> and Val McDermott gives the same advice. Oh, seriously, don't write about what the police do. Everybody will die of boredom. So I take creative license. I'll give you an example of it. Um, in my books, D.I. Shona McKenzie is always threatening to shoot people and she's always got a gun in her hand running around the streets of Dundee. Now, the Scottish police are not armed. And to my knowledge, I'm unique in that my police have guns. But the, the local police think this is really funny and they tweet about it. The real police tweet about it, saying, is she still running around the streets of Dundee with a gun in her hand? So I've, I've taken poetic license as well. <laughs> yeah, there was a little bit of gun toting that went on in that book, wasn't there? And yeah, as you say, quite a lot, quite a lot of eating. There's a lot of different sources that you've drawn on your personal experience, advice from other people, probably other research that you've done. And you've applied this to your work what overall is the kind of advice that you would give in terms of the way to apply those bits of of knowledge which are from real life into a piece of work and this probably would go beyond just police procedural as a genre but into other genres where people are thinking about setting and theme and all of this kind of stuff what's the sort of general principles that you use well i would say and i do this you research everything to the nth degree then you just sift it and decide what is important for the reader to know. For example, I know my characters inside out. I sat down and answered a 100 questions for every single main character. So I know them. But obviously, I'm not going to tell everybody that in the first chapter of book one. You eke it out as time goes on. If you happen to know, say you're an environmental activist and you know everything about that, don't turn your novel into a textbook. Don't let everybody know about that in the first book you write eke it out tell them a little bit each time so that you get them still wanting more and they're learning but they're not dying of boredom because if you just and i have to remember this as well just because i'm passionate about something doesn't mean the rest of the world's passionate about the same thing (laughs) 
That's an interesting point that you raised there that I want to come back to because you're not just writing a standalone book, you're writing a series of novels. It sounds like you've created a lot of backstory, a lot of information that's in the background with a view to letting little bits of that information out, not just in the first book, but over a series of books. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. I hold a little bit back and then I bring it forward. Some of the characters move into the next book, some of them don't. But you get to know a little bit more about all the characters, main characters, as the books go on. So I guess somebody starts at the beginning, they begin to get an impression, uh, chiefly of D.I. Shona McKenzie, but all of the people that work for her and her boss. And gradually, more, more bits of information are played out as you, as you go through the series. So I guess we'll learn a bit more about them when the fourth book comes out. Absolutely, yes. But the other thing you have to remember is with a series, it's, although it's a series, it's not a trilogy. So yes. they're standalone books. So you need to remember, as a writer to make sure that your readers who are reading the next... Say you were reading Killer's Cross. You mm. need to know enough about D.I. Shona McKenzie so that you can enjoy the book without me repeating everything I've done in the last two books. So I need to give a flavour of that without repeating it all again because the reader needs to get to know the characters properly regardless of what book they're reading. I have read that one book. Now, I, I didn't have a problem with thinking, oh, gosh, I haven't read the first two books. I don't know what's going on, because from my point of view, there was enough in there. So I'd say in that in that sense that you've been quite successful. I could see it's part of a series, but I didn't feel like I'd missed out on anything. Now, I want to come on to another aspect, which I think is particularly important for the genre that you're working in, which is plotting. You're working with quite a complex plot in your book. How do you create your plots? Do you do loads of planning beforehand? Do you kind of start the book and see how it, how it turns out? How do you approach well, this? Well, they say that most authors fall into two different camps. One is a plotter and one is a pantster. So one plots everything to the nth degree and they're just filling in the words in between. The other is a pantster where they just sit down and they don't even know who the killer is if they're writing a crime book. I know a writer that does that. I'm somewhere in the middle. So I do plot. I have a light plot to start with. I fill it in as I go along, as I think of things. I actually start the plotting while I'm still writing the previous book, which is very strange because I'm plotting book three while I'm still writing book two. And things will come up and I'll write them down. So when I go, I've got a light plot, which stands as a, a very fragile framework, really. I then, as I go through, that framework becomes more solid and I've got more of a plot. Um, so by the time I'm actually writing the book properly, I've got a solid framework to work on. But I am a bit of a pantster as well and I do change things around. And that would be my advice to any writer, really. Don't be afraid to change things. For example, the, the endings in all of my books have changed about three times. So it bears no resemblance to what happened at the beginning. Oh, really? Okay. Then I change it, I add bits, I think, oh, that would make a stronger ending, and I do that. So even the beta readers, when they come, they have to read the book because they still don't know what's happened at the end because <laughs> I've changed it. <laughs> so I don't didn't want to talk too much about the plot in uh, Killer's Cross because I don't want to kind of have a kind of spoiler moment or anything. But So in that book, did you change the end? I did because I had an aha moment about two-thirds of the way through. So the plot changed in from what I first envisaged to what actually happened. 
Okay. Um, again, without going into detail, what was it that made you think I need to I need to make that change? What improved in terms of the work? I always think, and this might just be me. Other writers might be different, but I always think my endings are a bit weak, and then when I'm writing the first draft, and they need to be strengthened. So I guess my subconscious is always thinking about how could that be strengthened, and it usually comes to you about three o'clock in the morning. So are you one of those authors that's got the little notebook by the side of a bed? So if you suddenly wake up with an idea, you can scribble it down or any. Other Absolutely. Thing? I'm a high-tech girl, so I've got an iPad next to my ah, bed okay. with ever note on it. <laughs> so you can just tap away at that any sort of 24 hours a day, can't you, if you need to? So if some genius idea comes to you. Absolutely, because you've always got – if you're using Evernote, I don't want to go into recommending apps, but if you're using Evernote, it doesn't matter whether you've got your phone on you, your computer, your iPad, whatever. You can write it down. It appears on all the devices. So you've actually got your notes integrated across all of the bits of hardware that you own then. absolutely yes so i can access them anywhere so i want to i want to come on now and talk again I mean, you, you've alluded to character and how you prepared and created your characters a little bit just just earlier on but i want to talk a little bit more about characters you've obviously done a lot of work behind the scenes what are you trying to achieve in terms of understanding your characters before you tell the story then or as you come to your story well i really need to know everything about my characters i need to know about their motivation I need to know about their background, how it shaped them, their innermost thoughts and feelings, what they like, what they don't like, what they fear, because that's what drives a character. It's what makes them real. You also need to realise that not every character is one-dimensional. We're not one-dimensional. We're a mixture of a million different things. Now, I'm only going to show a certain amount of who I am to certain people, which is, I think, the same with the characters. I need to know everything about them as though they're me. Not that any of them are modelled on me, I might add. (laughs) But I don't want that to come over all at once to the people behind it because you need to know your characters almost better than you know yourself or it's not going to come across to the readers really. I completely agree with you. A lot of the weaknesses that people have with with their writing is because they don't really understand who the character is and therefore they can't expect their readers to understand who those characters are either. Absolutely, yes. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the pace of your work. Everything moves at a fair lick in your book. I don't know whether that is the case with the two earlier ones. Is that a deliberate strategy? Do you think about the pace of the flavour of your writing? How do you deal with that? Well, I do think about the pace because pace is important, basically, so that you can move the story along. Now, you can heighten the tension by picking the pace up and you can slow down the tension by slowing up the pace. So longer sentences, longer chapters is slower the pace. If you want to ramp up the tension and ramp up the way the reader reads, it's shorter chapters and shorter sentences. Obviously, there has to be a, be a mixture of this because if it was just fast paced from the first word and to the last word, your reader's going to be exhausted by <laughs> the time they get to the end. And just thinking about what you said then, it seems to me that the chapters that had the point of view of your antagonist, your your bad guy, were much shorter in that way. So I'm guessing that you yeah. want to ramp up the tension with those short Absolutely, chapters. Yeah. You want to have the reader fairly on edge when you're explaining what's happening and on the kind of dark side of the, the stories that you're writing. Yes, you want the reader to feel that the bad guy is a bad guy, really. I, just, I like the, the reader to know the motivation of the bad guy. But I also like them to know that this guy or woman, 
man, whoever, isn't who they think they are and that they're, you know, they feel that they're on edge, as you say. I just want to pick up on something that you said there. You want the readers to understand why the bad guy, if you're a bad girl, is doing yeah. what they're doing. How how much understanding do you want your readers to have? Where's, where's the dividing line between you understand what somebody's doing, but you can still be frightened or horrified or offended by what they're doing? We're all fascinated by the fact that somebody's gone out and murdered, um, you know, 30 people, like Fred West. We're on, we're on edge and we think, well, this is an uncomfortable person. Mm. But people tend to, on yeah. the whole, want to know, why did he do that? Why did he go and kill 30 people and bury them under the patio? I don't know how many he killed. I'm making that up. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting the gist of what you're saying here. You know, it was a sort of yeah. pretty shockingly bad character, wasn't it? Yeah. And this is it. People want to know why the bad guy is the bad guy as well. It's it's human nature. We seem to be enthralled by the dark side of life, really. There is a point there that I actually want to come to in the next thing that I was going to talk about, because your author biography says that you are, in fact, a committed Christian. I am, yes. And yet, you know, I've read your book. There's violent death. There's references to satanic ritual. There's a whole bunch of bad stuff going on in there. Now, how do your... I've got a couple of questions, I suppose, around this. How do your beliefs inform your work? And how do you decide as a Christian, what you are going to write about, but still keep it, still keep your bad guys bad, I suppose. The thing is, there's good and there's evil, and that is a fact of life. So crime writing is really just bringing the evil and the good wins. So that's how I balance it, really. My books are not Christian, uh, as you probably gathered, <laughs> and I really do have to talk about the dark side of life. I would say I'm part of the Tartan Noir movement, which is Scottish crime. And Scottish, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here, but just to no, that's fine. Scotch crime. Like, what was are, that phrase again? Tartan noir. What did you say? Tartan that noir. The, oh, that's great. That's a great phrase. It's a great phrase. <laughs> and it, I'm going to have to use that in the show notes. I think so. Absolutely. And tartan noir is actually Scotland's second biggest export. It's crime writing. It's the second biggest export after whiskey. So I need to keep it realistic, or people are not going to read it. The only thing I don't do is there's absolutely no sex in my books. And there's no, there's very, very, very little swearing. There's maybe one in each book. That means it can be read by anybody. So it can be read by people who are Christians and don't want to read that sort of thing. It can be read by anybody else. And they won't find that that impacts on it because they've still got the evil part of the book. I made a conscious decision when I started writing that it isn't something that I would include. And it seems to have worked because people actually comment on that. They said it, they say it's refreshing to actually read a book where there's every second word isn't a swear word because in crime that very often happens. So it, let's say somebody who's listening to this is a person of with, with deeply held convictions they might be a christian they might they might have other beliefs what's your advice for for, for that person who is approaching yeah. their work they might be writing police procedural crime thrillers sci-fi fantasy how would you advise somebody on the tension between their own personal beliefs and the need to perhaps present something that's authentic that's real that's engaging that reflects real life well they need to make a, a conscious decision for themselves where their dividing lines lie I've obviously made a decision to um, include the the horror of it and the death and the quite graphic scenes 
But they need to work out personally what their own beliefs, even without their faith, what their own beliefs in real in their life would allow them to write about. But they also need to think about the reader because we're although we're writing for ourselves, everybody's writing for themselves, but we're not just writing for ourselves, we're writing for the reader. And what is the reader going to enjoy? Now, one of the things is if you take some of that out, you need to put something else in. Now, I've made a lot of humour in my books as well. So I've got the dark and light as two different things. So D.I. Shona McKenzie doesn't hold with swearing. And there's some quite comedic moments, really, as part of that, because you can imagine that the Dundee underworld, the thugs that she's coming across are not really talking like ballerinas. <laughs> so there, you, I've managed it in a different way. You need to decide how you're going to manage that. And it's not just omitted completely so that people think, well, this isn't real. I know I can remember reading the book. There are very specific points where she comes down pretty hard your character on somebody who is about to use a very choice word um and all i think all we get in the text is the first letter yeah so it's kind of you could you could kind of guess what they're going to say but the yes. di has shut them down <laughs> straight away so, so i suppose what's coming from this is you're reflecting real life but you're giving a rationale for the exclusion perhaps of, of bad language or the exclusion of sex scenes or whatever it is that you want to exclude absolutely yes yeah now i want to move on now and talk a little bit about how you market and promote your work because the more I've looked into your work itself and what you do I could I'm discovering more and more things that you do to promote the work that, that you produce can you give us a little bit of a flavor of the different things you do to present your work to the world Lime will be here all night <laughs> <laughs> I'm everywhere is what they say. <laughs> and it's it's probably pretty much true. I mean, I have done a lot of things to promote my work, not just to promote my work, but because I love it. Um, and because I've been asked to as well, which is lovely. Mm. Um, the, the Dundee libraries and the libraries round about me have seemed to have taken me to their heart. And I've been all to lots <laughs> of different libraries and I've done presentations, talked about my books. I've talk to local education groups. I, to my utmost surprise, I was the visiting author for, for National Book Week at a local primary school. Now, that really took me by surprise because I said, well, are you sure you really want me? Because I write adult crime books. Nah, the kids will love it. The kids did love it. They thought, <laughs> yeah, they did. I couldn't believe it. And I had them writing the opening line to a crime book and they thought all their birthdays had come at once. So I've been to fates, I've been to local shopping centres and done book signings. I have book launches at Waterstones. Um, I put pictures on Facebook of where my book is in shops. Anything I can think of, really, just because it's fun. So to come to the book launch idea that you mentioned just yeah. then. So you're publishing in print an ebook. Um, yes. A lot of, I think a lot of authors would love to have a launch in a bookshop. How do you go about doing that, getting your book launched in a bookshop? Well, there's two things you need to. Before you go in, you need to be passionate about your product and you need to be confident in your own abilities. If you're not that, if you go in, go in, oh, would you like me to have a book launch? Nobody's going to listen to you. If you go in and you say, hey, I'm a local author. I'm launching my book. I would love to have a book launch. Here's what the book's about. This is how it fits in with your customers. 
This is where it fits into in the terms of Scottish or English or Welsh or wherever you are in the world. Literature, by that point, they're kind of going, yeah, we'll let you do whatever you want. <laughs> to be honest, it's not, I put it across as being very easy, but to start with, Waterstones were like, well, are you going to have enough people? And I said, well, I promise you I'll have enough people. So then you need to produce the people. And it worked because it was about 100 people at my first book launch. So Wow, very excellent. <laughs> so how did you get there? I mean, I, I, obviously, there are people that know you personally, perhaps, who would have come along. But how do you get people to come to a book launch? Um, well, I, obviously, I said to people, I'm having a book launch. Would you like to come? Yes, I'd like to come. It was friends. It was family. Yeah. It was wider friends. It was colleagues. It was people I knew. I was fortunate in that people came from all over the place. They came from all over Scotland to the book launch. I even had somebody come from the um, Western Isles to Dundee, which I thought was awesome. But by this point, and I'm going to be doing a presentation on marketing in March in Bath for the Association of Christian Writers. And one of the big things with marketing is you start to market your product when you write the first word. So your book, you start marketing it when you write the first word. You start to let people know about it. So I did that. And by the time my book was launched three years later, half the world was going, when is this book coming out? (laughs) So when you say you're marketing it from when you when you start to write the first word, do you mean by that in terms of talking about the book to the outside world as you write it? Uh, is, that, is that what we're talking about here? Is that giving people some information about, I don't know, maybe you finished your first edit, your first draft, got the cover ready, the, the kind of waypoints along the way. Is, is that how that works? Absolutely. But you don't even need to go into that much detail. I mean, you can even just say things like, I'm sat on the train and I'm writing Killer's Countdown, if you've got the title by then. And D.I. Sean McKenzie's getting up to all sorts of mischief. And that's just a status update on Facebook or Twitter, you know. Mm. I wanted to talk about the the kind of e-world of marketing, which you've just alluded to there. So you've talked about Facebook and Twitter. Are, Are they the two primary platforms that you use to communicate about your books and about what you do? Are there others that you use? What do you do? I use Facebook, Twitter, Goodreads, but not quite so much. I also use, I'm trying to think, Instagram and LinkedIn. And that's pretty much it for me. Oh, and Pinterest. Pinterest is a huge one. I'm interested in exploring a couple of those a little bit further, actually. But some of them I use as well. I'd be interested to know what you, how you use them. Pinterest. What do you do on Pinterest then to market your work? Well, on Pinterest, uh, first of all, I use the one thing we need to remember about social media before we go into marketing is it's called social media for a reason. It's not marketing media. And so many authors just use these to market their books it's social media so you need to be a social person first and foremost so I've got a lot of social boards on um, Pinterest but I've also got boards on uh, writing marketing promotion D.I. Shona McKenzie books and reading I've got a board on My Dundee which is I just take photographs of all the places that D.I. Shona McKenzie might be or pictures of Dundee so that people can refer to it and see more about Dundee Mm. Okay, so so actually you've got a diverse range of interests, yeah, uh, and things that you're you're reflecting in, on on all of those boards. So you, you're able to present just visual image, different visual images from different things that you're interested in. Yeah. 
what about um i mean i do take your point about it's it's social media not marketing media and i think that's a that's a critical lesson isn't it for for authors how do you use twitter then do you use twitter in the same way you try to be sociable on twitter yeah i'm sociable on twitter i could be having a chat about downton abbey not that i'll be doing much of that now but i could be having a chat about a television program or i could be putting out pictures of my books I just I put out pictures of myself. Um, I put out I put out a picture of my house at Christmas. You know, it's different things. It's not all marketing. No, and it sounds as if a lot of it isn't marketing. Actually, it's just chatting, or it's just talking about stuff that's happening. Yeah. Uh, things which people who know you or know your work might might be interested in. Yeah. You've obviously done a bit of speaking as well. Do you actively pursue speaking engagements? I've been pretty fortunate in that on the whole, the libraries have asked for me to go and do the talk. So to start with, I, I was asked to do one of the libraries in Dundee and then I was asked to do other talks in other libraries. A couple of them I rang, but then the head librarian in Dundee, who's amazing, said would you like to talk do it through me and we'll do some libraries every time you bring out another book Montrose library asked me to do it I was asked to go to London to a library there at St John's Wood and do a talk which I did because I happened to be down anyway for a conference and I've just had people ask me I've I've not really set them up myself I, I my latest one I had an email this morning saying would I go and do a talk in Aloha in April so that's quite nice that's good. So actually, the, these opportunities have come to you. Yes. Do you think that's a function of how much you are out there in social media? Or is it a function of the number of books that are out there or, or the time you've been writing? What do you think it is that, that's driven this, if you can discern it at all? It's, I think it's a mixture of everything. Um, my books seem to be everywhere. So and we're in every library because Dundee libraries have taken my books to their heart and have ordered 23 copies of each book. Brilliant. When it's <laughs> I know, it's amazing. Um, so everybody knows about the books and then because I've got one of the things with marketing is everybody has to see your cover marketing books everybody has to see your covers a minimum of six or seven times before they'll even think about taking it on board oh, that's interesting when right. you've got posters and things up when you're doing all these talks there are posters up with you pictures of your book covers on so people see them and then people hear about you or someone will want a speaker and they'll go, oh, I know somebody. There's a lady called Wendy. She's writing books. And someone went into Waterstones and said, we've heard about someone called Wendy who's writing books and we'd like her to do a talk. And they said, oh, we know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> So you are making yourself into somebody who would come to people's minds when they ask who yes. could do this, who could speak, who could yes, come along. Um, and I suppose you then build up a critical mass of people who say, Wendy could come and do it. Wendy could come and speak at, at yes. our event. I want to ask you as well, just for a few minutes, about your writing life. Are you one of these people who gets up very early every morning and does two hours work or five hours work or something? Or do you just work at different times during the day? Are you quite regimented in the way in which you produce the material that, that, that you do? How does that work for you? Well, I'm regimented in that I work every day because I was in the military. and that, But I, this is going to sound odd, but I'm a, an anytime, anywhere type of girl. But in a literary sense, I might add. <laughs> Um, I'm fortunate in that I can write anywhere. So I can write on the train using my laptop. I can write in libraries. I can write in coffee shops. If I'm doing an event, a book signing in a coffee shop and it's not very busy, I'll write in between times, things like that. So I do write every day, but it just, I can, I might write in the sitting room, but mainly I'm in my office writing, I have to say. 
I mean, it sounds as if you don't have to be in a quiet space or the same space or the same time to produce your work. It sounds as if you're pretty kind of versatile in terms of the different environments that, that you can be in when you're, when you're producing material. Yes. And is that the case for first drafts and editing? Is that the case for the whole creative process? Or is there, is there one point in the process where you have to go and sit down quietly somewhere and, and concentrate? When I'm editing, I only edit in my office because you really need to concentrate on what's happening and to get it right because you don't want the book to go out there full of errors. But I only, I only tend to do that in my office or somewhere quiet. So I'd probably be able to do that in a library. So it's not in that instance, it's not the office that you need, but it's just the quiet space where you can focus your attention and to get the thing right. Absolutely. Yes. Although I have to say, I do do most of my writing in my office because it's got the biggest computer and the biggest screen, but I don't have to. I just wanted to ask you about your progression as a writer. What are the things that you found useful in building up your skill as a writer? Well, I've read a lot of um, books on writing. I've been to writer's workshops. Um, I go to the writer's workshop day at Bloody Scotland every year. Um, I've been to the Cromartie Crime Festival and had writing workshops there. Um, I attend a writer's group. I get feedback from people. I get feedback from other writers. So I do as much as I can to improve my skill as a writer as well. And are there any particular books on writing that you found helpful that you would perhaps recommend to other people? There is one, which is How Not to Write a Novel, which is shows you how what not to do. Oh, yes. And yes. it tells you what to do. I mean, that is not only excellent at helping you improve your writing, but extremely funny into the process. <laughs> yes, I've got that one. It is it is very funny, isn't it's it? It's very I good. I think that's the one with the, the is it the one with the kitten and the revolver on the front cover or something like yes. that. Yes. And there's another one which would help you with plotting and it's by Alexandra Sokolov and I cannot and it, she comes from a uh, she's American and she comes from a background of writing Hollywood scripts. And she now lives in Scotland and writes crime books in Scotland. And her book, if you look up Alexandra Sokolov, her book on plotting and use it's script writing, uh, script writing for authors, I think it's called. It, that is superb. Sokolov is S K S O K O O L O W, I think. Right. Okay. So want to sort of bring things to a close in a minute. Yeah. Before I do that, a couple of other questions then. What are you working on at the moment? Well, I'm a glutton for punishment because I'm working on two things at the moment. The first is the fourth book in the D.I. Shona McKenzie mysteries. Right. And I'm going to announce just for this podcast what it's going to be called. Okay. I could probably guess the first word in the title, but maybe I'm being a bit cheeky there. I don't know. <laughs> You know, you might be a bit <laughs> ambitious. No, it's called Killer's Cut. Okay, so that's going to be the fourth D.I. Shana McKenzie mystery, Killer's Cut. Do you know yes. when that's going to be coming out at all? Hopefully April. Okay, and is that ebook and print in April? Ebook and print, yes. I always bring them out on the same day. Okay, just uh, just out of interest, how, um, what do you use for for print, and what do you use for e- ebooks? How do you how do you produce your material? Ebooks go up on Amazon, and the and not only Amazon, they go up to um, iBooks, so Apple iBooks, Kobo, Nook. Do you do all those separately? Do you do you manage each of those separately, or do you use an aggregator? I've been using an aggregator. I've been using Smashwords, but. I'm actually, the advice out there is to actually upload to Kobo and iBooks yourself. So that's what I'm ah, going to do okay. for book four. That's interesting. And what about the print side then? What yeah. do you use for that? The print side, I use CreateSpace. I know a lot of people who listen to my podcast, I do self-publish, they do use 
these things they do they are particularly interesting crate space what's what's been your experience with them i found them to be absolutely outstanding i haven't had a problem whatsoever with them and um, it's easy to upload things to them as long as you've got the right cover size that's the biggest issue but as i get mine done professionally everything's done professionally professional editing professional um cover the cover the covers are sent to you for everything mm. just straight away and they're ready to upload and create space themselves i've had to phone them a couple of times because uh, unfortunately a box of books went missing and um it didn't arrive in time for a, a talk i was doing so i didn't have any books but to be honest it worked out to my um advantage because they sent me it was 100 books i was waiting for they sent me another 100 um i didn't have to pay any postage and then the original hundred t- turned up and they said they're with our compliments to say sorry and they didn't charge me a <laughs> hundred extra books a hundred extra books <laughs> so that's how good they are <laughs> so your your experience with them has been pretty positive then Absolutely. That's, that's interesting and i think most of the people i i know who are who are looking at print for self-publishing are contemplating create space and in fact most people i talk to will also mention doing the cover professionally is a really smart idea getting the editing done professionally is a really smart idea as well okay so that's one book you're working on what else are you working on the second one i am writing a book on marketing and promoting for writers i don't know what it's going to be called at the moment but it's going to be something like what i've just said Um, and it's to go along with the talk that i'm doing at um, the Association of Christian Writers on the 12th of March in Bath and pretty much going to be launched that day so the 12th of March. Okay so you so your book on marketing for, for authors comes out in March on the 12th of March yes um, and the next D.I. Shona McKenzie novel will be out in April. Yes I'm not exactly sure what date yet um, but I think it's going to be before the 22nd because my birthday is on the 22nd so it's a birthday present to me. <laughs> okay <laughs> And that, that's going to be called Killer's Cut. Killer's Cut. The, the C in the second name wasn't a conscious decision. But then when it happened, people have said to me, oh, you've got to keep it like that. You've got to keep it like that. And they're all trying to guess what the next one's going to be. So I thought, oh, well, we'll leave it the way it is. <laughs> so so not only are you, have you got to have a, the first word killers, but then your your second word has got to have, have a K or a C or something. Yes, absolutely. That's going to have that kind of K sound. That was never a conscious decision. It just happened accidentally for the first three well, hey, if it works, that's great, isn't it, I suppose. Now, just to finish off, is there anything else, any other advice that you would give aspiring authors based on your experience? Well, I would say write in a genre genre that you're familiar with. If you read crime books, then write crime books. If you read romance, then write romance. I couldn't write a romance if you paid me because I don't read it. I do, but not all the time. So write in a, a genre that you read in and write. And I know that sounds very odd and very trite, but... In order to be a writer, you need to write. (laughs) Write as often as you can. Write when you can. And just even if all you're doing is just jotting the ideas down to start with, jot them down. You can't edit a blank page. And do you do you use Word to write or do you use something like Scrivener? Are you, are you a Scrivener fan at all or do you just... Oh, I use Word. I'm familiar with Word, so that's why I use it. And it's not a great drama for me, to be honest. People say that if you use Scrivener, it's better for plotting and things. But I plot in a notebook. That's the only old fashioned bit I do. <laughs> That's interesting. So you actually you you do your plotting in a handwritten notebook before you come to actually write yes. write the thing in Word. But hey, again, it works for you, doesn't it? So that's yeah, cool. it's very bizarre. All writers are a sucker for stationery. A lovely notebook. I don't know a writer that isn't tempted by that, frankly. I am a sucker for stationery. What more can I say? 
So uh, is there any other advice that you would give to aspiring authors? Follow your dream. All aspiring authors have a dream. They want to be a writer. You need to start writing. Write your story. Get it edited. Do it professionally. Get it looked out like looked at by other people. And don't be frightened to do it yourself. I'm not saying don't go down the traditional route because I think that's a very, very important part of the publishing world today. I'm not getting at that at all. But I like the fact that I can control what I'm doing myself and the fact that I can get mm. books out more frequently. And readers like that, the fact that they can get the books more quickly. If you were publishing commercially, you certainly wouldn't be able to say, well, I'm writing a, a book at the moment, it'll be out in April. You just couldn't say that, could you? Yeah, it's, it, to be honest, when I say I'm writing a book at the moment, it's written, I'm editing it. And even that, even that in the commercial process, you'd be talking about 2017 or something, wouldn't you? And now, if people are interested in your work, how can they find out more about How can they find out more about you and about your work and, and get access to your book? Well, if they go to my website, which is wendyhjones.com, they can find out more about my books. And also, very exciting, they can get a free D.I. Shona McKenzie book. D.I. Shona McKenzie's Guide to Killing Your Boss. <laughs> and this is a theme that runs throughout all the books. D.I. Shona McKenzie's always dreaming killing her boss <laughs> she certainly does have a kind of interesting relationship with her boss I yeah. mean, he seemed he, he seemed to be there in part in the book to kind of irritate her and, and frustrate her and wind her up because she he was she did have some encounters with him certainly absolutely but the, the one thing i will say if people do want the book at the moment the free book at the moment i'm having a little bit of difficulty with it the pop-up coming up on mobile sites so if they want to sign up for that book best to do it on a on something with a bigger screen uh, yeah. wendyhjones.com was that the site yes and what about getting the books themselves then if people want to get those get those books how do they do that you can get them from the website if you want signed copies you can get them from waterstones all the online retailers clc dundee has got them clc in cambridge has got them if you went to the clc most they would be able to get hold of it you can also get it on amazon um, there's lots of places. To be honest, it doesn't matter where you want to get it. There's lots of libraries have it and it's available on all the electronic outlets as well. And I don't know whether you are open to other speaking engagements, but if somebody wants to contact you, perhaps with a view to booking you to come and speak, can they just go to your website? Is there a contact? Absolutely. There's a contact on my website. I'm open to speaking engagements all over the UK. In fact, I'm all over the world. If someone in Australia is listening, they want me to do a talk. Hey, I'm available. <laughs> They've just got a contact you and book you up absolutely okay yes brilliant well thank you very much wendy for your time it's been great to talk to you and it's been interesting to hear about your development as a writer and how you've you've managed to, to get the books out sell it and have some success with that it's brilliant thanks very much you're welcome cheers bye-bye <laughs>